Today on State Scoop's Priorities Podcast from Scoop News Group. Why California is emphasizing the middle mile of broadband deployment, DC's new chief data officer's top priorities, and what's top of mind for states as those in 2023. Welcome to State Scoop's Priorities Podcast. Every Thursday, you'll get insights into the state and local government technology community. You'll hear from top leaders across the state and local world and learn about the latest news and trends ahead for the industry. I'm your host, Jake Williams. Here's what's happening this week. The U.S. is charging a Russian national accused of carrying out multiple ransomware attacks, including a 2021 attack against the Washington, D.C. Police Department. The Justice Department unsealed indictments against the Russian national who lives in Kaliningrad, Russia, this week. Along with the charges, the accused ransomware attacker is barred from conducting financial transactions in the U.S. He's unlikely to be extradited to face these charges. The Bloomberg Philanthropy City Data Alliance is adding 20 new cities. The new cities, which include Buffalo, New York, and Charlotte, North Carolina, as well as Washington, D.C., join 42 total cities in North and South America who are committing to use data to improve resident outcomes. The program began last year after a $60 million investment from former New York Mayor Michael Bloomberg. Missouri CIO Jeff Wan is stepping down. Wan spent nearly three and a half years leading the state's IT division. He wrote in a LinkedIn post that he's looking for a new job. Wan prioritized IT modernization and citizen-centric services in Missouri. You can find these stories and more at statescoop.com and in links in today's show notes. So there's a lot going on for Code for America right now. Their their annual summit is in Washington, D.C. this week. Statescoop's Benjamin Freed is with me now. Hi, Ben. Hey, Jake. How's it going? It's it's going well. So so tell me, what, what's going on with Code for America this week? So it's a big week for Code for America. They're having their annual summit here in Washington. This is something they do every year. Um and that's their big event for bringing in uh, state officials, federal officials, uh, industry, industry partners. I think there's a delegation from the UK Digital Service this year. And it's kind of their, their big gathering to uh, discuss, you know, what they see as the latest and greatest in civic tech and, and the work that they've done. But there's a couple other things going on with Code for America right now. Um, uh, one has to do with uh, the relationship the organization has with uh, these local volunteer groups around the country known as brigades. Uh, and earlier this year, Code for America announced that it's it's going to more or less sever the formal relationships it's had with these groups. Uh, and that's caused some consternation in the community and and some, some big changes there. The other thing going on is that Code for America's uh, staff is uh, trying to negotiate for the, the is trying to negotiate uh, a bargaining agreement for the the union that they formed uh, nearly two years ago, uh, but the two sides uh, are still work, have a lot of issues to work out, and uh, negotiations have have uh, gotten a bit rocky in recent weeks, and there's some some updates there as well. So so let's let's talk about I mean both of those things are are big so let's talk about each of them I mean you talked about some consternation uh, uh among the um the brigades and and their reaction to the decision that Code for America made to to not support them I mean how how has that decision gone over with them and and sort of what what's going on there So the important thing to understand first is that for a long time basically going back to 2012-2013 Code for America as a 501c3 nonprofit group has acted as what's called a fiscal sponsor for these for these local brigades um, basically means that Code for America handles all of the financial oversight because little groups of local volunteers who just get together to talk about you know open data or you know 
or coding, you know, they don't have the wherewithal to do all of the, the, you know, the work that charitable groups need to do. So Code for America handles all of that under an agreement known as a fiscal sponsorship. Uh, but the, uh, but Code for America said in February, announced in February that it's ending that arrangement and all these local brigades have to find uh, a new host, a new host organization uh, for their finances. A lot of them are in that process. Uh, it also means, code, but Code for America also asked them, asked a lot of them to change their names if they begin, if the local, if the brigade names begin with Code 4, like Code for Chicago, Code for Philly. So in addition to having to find new fiscal homes, a lot of these groups are also going to have to rebrand. And that understandably has caused uh, a lot of frustration uh, among those, among those uh, groups. Um, and so, so, you know, they've definitely been, I, I would assume talking amongst themselves and sort of figuring out next steps. What 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 is next for the brigades uh, at this time? Yeah, I mean they've been talking among themselves. They've been talking. They've been trying. They've been talking to Code for America. Um, what's what what the the big point? The big main point of conversation is really uh, what you know. What is going to kind of tie the the brigades uh, together in a network? Now these groups, these local groups, all uh, have always operated with a, a, a high degree of autonomy in what projects they, they seek to pursue, how they work with their home, uh, hometown governments. They don't take, you know, Code for America doesn't set the direction for the brigades, but Code for America, uh, because of its you know, status as a, as, a, as a national organization, uh, had had this convening power and kind of this, you know, operational support. So what they're trying to do is, uh, what some of the brigades are trying to do is trying to form a new umbrella organization uh, that maybe one day can uh, you know, fill in some of that. Uh, so what happened this week uh, is that uh, a new group called the Alliance of Civic Technologists uh, announced itself. And this is a coalition of about 16 of the Code for America brigades. And they're not... This is this so far is just kind of a, a loose, loose, uh, loose umbrella organization. Uh, they don't have any tax status or anything. It's it's really at this point it's it's sort of uh, uh, a Discord server and some uh, civic tech folks who are just trying to figure out how to uh, you know you know continue uh, uh, continue this 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 community uh, while you know, maintaining their their own uh, local passions. Um, you know, there, you know, maybe one day this, this new group will, you know, be able to hold events, uh, and, and do bigger things. But for now, they're just trying to keep, keep their, uh, network together. And has Code for America had any reaction to that decision? Well, Code for America hasn't said anything about the Alliance for Civic Technologists, but I talked on uh, Tuesday, uh, uh, if you're here, so I'm, I talked on Tuesday of this week with Tracy Patterson. She's the, uh, she's the chief performance officer at Code for America, one of their top executives. And what she told me is that uh, this decision, uh, she said they didn't make it, uh, she didn't make, they didn't make it lightly, but uh, the organization has kind of, has in recent years been, Trending away from uh, you know a volunteer you know being needing a, or, or relying on its volunteer network, um, I think it 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 values its uh, I think it values its relationship with the civic tech volunteer community. But Code for America's work these days is uh, 
you know, very, very much focused on uh, direct development of of digital applications for social benefits programs uh, administered by state and local governments. That's kind of always been their bread and butter, but now uh, it's really uh, it, it's really become more of a, a full time uh, software development uh, software development organization. Yeah, and so you know, speaking of it becoming a full time organization, obviously there are many employees who who make that happen. And as you said at the top, those employees are are unionizing and and working to to bargain for uh, for their rights. I mean, what's the what's the latest on on that attempt to form a union? Again, you you mentioned it's it's, it's almost two years old, um, and, and Code for America did indeed voluntarily recognize it. Where, where does this stand today? Uh, it, it it's not as sunny as it sounded two years ago. Uh, Code for America. Uh, you know, probably not surprisingly, if, if uh, for anybody who knows about, you know, kind of the, 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 the values that, that it's built around, uh, was, was very vocal uh, to say how proud it was to be the first civic tech organization to give voluntary recognition to a, uh, an employee's union. But that's only one step of the process. They've been negotiating for, you know, for, for the better part of a year and a half uh, or longer at this point. And negotiations stalled out last month. Uh, there are a number of issues on which they're hung up, uh, both having to do with employee compensation and pay time off and uh, work schedules, as well as uh, you know other matters not related to uh, salary and benefits. Uh, and there is a big disagreement over uh, who gets to be in, in the union, who's a manager, who's a director, who's not. And uh, this is all coming to a head uh, while uh, the organization is holding its big summit here in DC. And so, you know, with, with all of those, with the negotiation stalled, with, uh, you know, with the, the, the sheer length of time that this has been debated, I mean, where, to, where, where does the union and where does Code for America go from here uh, in this process? So based on, uh, based, based on some recent reporting by our colleague, Lindsay McKenzie, uh, negotiations did resume earlier this month, but over the the non-financial matters. So nothing related to salary or benefits. Uh, they have been mostly talking about workplace culture, value statements. Uh, but the big thing right now is that question of who gets to be in the union. And that's gotten to a point where... Uh, uh, Today, Thursday, uh, when you're here, when when uh, when when you're hearing this, or when we were recording this, uh, there is a National Labor Relations Board hearing over that very question, and we'll be following that uh, uh, that hearing, um, and uh, you know there that may there may be some resolution to come out of that. And so, Ben, to, to wrap us up here, I mean, you know, I said it at the top, and I'll I'll say it again. It's kind of a big week for Code for America. A uh, lot of lot of stuff going on uh, across the the community. Uh, where does this leave Code for America? What 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 is where what does this look like going forward? You know, Code for America is an organization that 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 is you know really you know built up and mature at this point. It's thirteen years old. Last year, it got a a very high profile hundred million dollar uh, 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 contribution to build out. Uh, a what they're calling a safety net innovation lab, and that's really to fund a lot of the organization's work in building out uh, app, digital applica- digital government applications to deliver programs like uh, you know nutrition benefits, cash assistance, uh, all you know 
a lot of other programs. And that really is the, the main focus of the organization's work now. Um, you know, it's, it's, uh, it, it's a real, you know, it does mark, I think, you know, uh, a, a turning point uh, or really, you know, the end of one chapter in the organization's history, moving away from the, the volunteer network. Um, you know, maybe there will be some programming uh, for uh, volunteers in the future. Uh, but, you know, it really is a, you know, a, a you know, more fully fledged, uh, you know, develop, you know, software development organization now. Um, and, you know, they're an organization that uh, is familiar to Statescape readers. We've covered them for a long time and uh, we are going to uh, continue covering uh, the organization as well as the work that it does. All right. Well, that's Ben Freed, Statescoop's uh, managing editor. Thanks for being here, Ben. Thank you. Thanks. To read more about what's going on at Code for America, check out statescoop.com and links in today's show notes. California's CIO Leanna Belli Crimmins is focusing on workforce development, cybersecurity, and broadband expansion as her top priorities for the year ahead. Bailey Crimmins, who was recently confirmed as the director of the state's Department of Technology and state CIO earlier this month, says her time is increasingly being spent on closing the digital divide in the state. She tells me about those priorities and how California is tackling the broadband gap. The priorities that we have here is a leader is only as successful as the team members that they have the privilege of of leading. And so workforce development, we have large population of individuals that are retiring here soon. We have a lot of college students considering public service. For So how do we continue investing in, in people? Uh, my vision is people first, security always. Uh, so it, people, if it be the public that we're serving or the team members that we get to work alongside, um, they are at the heart of everything that we do. So definitely workforce development, cybersecurity. It is a wrapper that we are, uh, you know, definitely making sure that the most vital assets of the state that we are protecting. Uh, California has CalSecure, which uh, went out and was one of the first um, plans to not only put together a policy, but really a roadmap of maturity over multiple years. And it allows departments to have a target of where they should be at on year two, year three. In some cases, they're, they're way ahead of the, the curve. And so, um, so definitely when we look at, at security, how not only do we provide guidance, but also stand side by side as departments when they do have um, assessments and need maturity, how do we help them achieve, um, you know, just better controls and, and better actions within their own departments. And then obviously diversity, equity, inclusion. In addition to having a diverse workforce across our 11,000 IT staff within our uh, within our state, we are also in Department of Technology responsible for developing the California um, Digital Equity Plan and uh, looking at what barriers exist in different populations and how do we make sure that we provide broadband for all. In California, we have one in five Californians that don't have affordable access or connectivity to high-speed broadband. And we know in the 21st century, um, being a technologist, it's hard to imagine our lives without technology, but there are still many communities that don't have um, the opportunity, either the device, affordability, or, or the connectivity in general. So we look at it from both a urban, rural, and tribal perspective of how we can continue expanding our network. 
And then um, technology modernization. One of the things that, uh, as you know, uh, California was always very innovative uh, early, but some of our technologies are over 30 years old. And so how do we look at opportunities to continue to modernize, making sure that they're, um, they're stable, they're resilient, but they're also providing the services uh, in, a, in a way that is engaging with the, the, the consumer and the customers out there and that uh, that we look at ways to to leverage our dollars, maximize it, but also uh, make sure that what we're delivering is something that is they think that is valuable today and in the future um, as it was it was 10 years or 20 years ago when it was developed. Workforce in this moment in state government is is a really interesting challenge, right? You have uh, the the capability to work from anywhere for a lot of private sector companies. Uh, you have the capability to do that for some governments as well. Um, you know, there there are obviously pay discrepancies and and, and differences between industry and and the public sector as well. I mean, how are you really making the sell to to folks to come and do their public service uh, in the state of California? Well, I, I would have to say I'm, I'm this next generation of workforce is very civic minded. Um, so that is great. Uh, so obviously we need to make sure we're paying the bills, but a lot of times mission matters when it comes to, to the next generation workers. And obviously I did not start um, when I was 18, I started in as a student assistant and I did not plan to be a public servant. I planned to get my computer science degree and go out and, and, uh, and tackle the world, but I, I fell in love with public service. When you really understand that what your skills can do and what who they can impact, if it be our grandparents, our neighbors, um, you know, just it, it's just so rewarding. And I will say that uh, we we put a campaign together. It was called Work for California, and uh, with the GovOps agency and other about twenty other state departments. Because one of the things we're tackling, which I'm I'm sure other states are, and the commercial world, we're we're ranging between five percent if you're you know a fairly large department, in some cases twenty percent vacancy rate. And when you have that many people starting to either retire. Um, we need to make sure that we have a succession plan that we're thinking about at some point, someone else needs to be able to take over the duties that we have. And so getting the word out, we went out to uh, do a job fair. And in addition to taking what people do today in their skill set and help them translate that into the types of work that we do within the state. And if people were just interested, but they, they didn't get a chance to talk to anybody, we had a form online. They had like over 6,000 inquiries to the types of jobs that are out there. And then the other thing is once you get them in the pipeline, part of the, the, the tackle that we have in government is that we, we have to actually speed up the, the process uh, so that we don't wait six, you know, eight, 10 months before we actually get someone in, in the seat. And so we are looking at an HR modernization project to say, once you get someone interested that there's a good good match, then how do we do a rapid recruitment and, and make sure that um, we're taking advantage of that great workforce that's out there? You said one in five, I think, Cal Californians don't have access to, to uh, affordable high-speed internet. Um, you know, what does that what does that mean for how you're approaching this problem? I mean, it's not a problem that just you as the state CIO can solve. Uh, how are you how are you addressing that and pulling people together? It it it, it takes a village. <laughs> so it, it is a larger ecosystem because what you are looking at is the connectivity, right? So we have many locations across our, I mean. 
California's 55% rule. And in some cases you have internet service providers where it just didn't make economic sense. They, they didn't actually wire certain um, uh, communities. And then of the one in five, 75% of the unconnected is actually in urban areas. So then even if you had connectivity, then you have an affordability. You know, when people are having to make a choice of $100 to pay for internet services or $100 for groceries, I mean, they're making the best decision that they can for their own families. And so how do we make sure working with the federal government, there's obviously, you know, um, uh, opportunities for discounted services and subsidized services, making sure that communities are aware of that. Um, if you are on the, the lunch program or CalFresh, you do actually qualify for discounted internet and making sure that, that people uh, apply for that and helping. In addition, devices. Uh, in some cases, cell phone is the only thing that they have. And if you're trying to do an application, if you're trying to do online education, telehealth is sometimes you can do it decently on a phone, but their device primarily is, is, a, is, a, is, a, is a cell phone. So what can we do to make sure that discounted devices get in the hands of individuals? Because we know that it helps when it comes to during the pandemic, the only time some of us could actually meet with doctors was through technology. Then you have, um, you know, if you want to go back to school, I, I decided to go back to school during the pandemic. So online um, education, and that allows people to elevate their ability to, you know, produce income for their home. Um, and then a lot of what we do in government and our communities, all of our services are online. So imagine if you have to drive 70 miles to go to a permitting office and then you have to go several times um, paying for gas. And uh, so you have to look at it from an entire ecosystem. So the state is building um, a, a middle mile. That's what, what I'm, our department's ultimately responsible. But we also are partnering with CPUC and the BEAD program, um, which allows last mile. In some cases, there might be still only nine households communities can actually be their own service provider, how they can connect, and that there's an ongoing revenue model so that as people participate in the open access, that they have an opportunity. Um, so if something happens and someone digs through the cable that we can repair it. Uh, and then again, the devices and making sure that the equity plan as we look at grants and opportunities for more funding to help these, these communities um, that we are working together as a full state and as full uh, community to to help each other out. I want to dive into that just a, a little bit more because I think it's it's an interesting challenge for a, a CIO, right? You talk about your computer science, you know, background and 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 sort of uh, sort of ending up in public service uh, so long ago. Um, how how do you sort of reorient your brain as an IT leader, right? Uh, to to think about things like where do you dig for the cable and making sure that all of these pieces of, of deploying broadband in rural communities, uh, the parts that you're responsible for, uh, how do you reorient your brain, surround yourself with experts who know more than you uh, to, to deliver on this, this initiative that is not just, you know, servers and switches? Well, I, I think it's something that I, because I grew up, I mean, in, in, as a public servant and my entire adult life has been serving State IT. And so I've twofold. So two stories was one, I worked at Youth Authority and that was about talk about rehabilitation. And I saw firsthand how a digital high school, I mean, they earned degrees, but they were also able to get, um, you know, Cisco certifications, how 
it made a huge difference in those lives of those incarcerated wards that they could actually take technology and make a better life for themselves. In some circumstances, um, I was out at a, a fire camp. And so the fire camps would actually work with the youth at that time to help fight fires and they learn life skills. And I was working in a, a network closet and, and doing all the, the cables and the gentleman that was in the, the closet was saying, oh, I, I was at this camp um, not that long ago. And I said, oh, uh, so obviously you're a telecommunication provider. Um, you know, tell me more about that. And he says, no, no, I, I was actually in a war. I was a ward that was at the facility. So it, it, you don't realize the how you are implementing technology and how it is changing the people that you serve. In this case, it was a, a, a ward, it was a youth, and, and they were able to go out and make six figures and be, re, you know, rebuild, 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 rebuilt, and, and use technology. And then also when I was at Corrections, we have a, a prison system that I had to uh, wire every single institution. So both uh, broadband all the way up and down the state and obviously within the facility. And Everyone's supposed to call before they dig, but in some circumstances, you'd have someone dig through it. And so what we have to do is not only the one-time investment, but make sure that you have the ongoing investment because technology ages, electronic needs to be replaced, that as a CIO, you are a technologist, but you are also a public servant and a business leader. So you have to think about everything more holistically. Um, so you do have to be a couple steps ahead and, and not just focus on that one project, that one delivery, but really how does this become a part of a larger program that gives back to your constituents beyond even your career. I want to switch gears just a little bit and talk about the CalSecure and the, the cybersecurity work that you're doing that you talked about a little bit earlier. Um, you know, you mentioned how sort of building these plans, building these um, these milestones for other agencies and other departments. I mean, what uh, when you're, again, sort of more of a leadership question here, when you're thinking strategically about how to get that done, how to set those benchmarks, how to bring in those folks into the conversation. I mean, how do you do that? How do you sort of wrap your head around what is a very big and ambitious and long-term uh, strategy and vision? Well, when we think of cybersecurity, at, at, in California, we are, have a federated model. So about 150 state departments. And so you have CIOs and CISOs in each of those departments. Uh, I really believe in having stakeholders that if you're making a policy decision, if you are establishing you know, good practices, you need to have the stakeholders at the table. And in addition to the technologists, you need to bring the business people along as well, because in some circumstances, technologists you know, we shouldn't be accepting or making decisions on behalf of the business without bringing them into the conversation. If we're uh, hosting a credit card information, do we want to host it or do we want to pay a vendor to do that for us? These are business decisions. Technology enables it, but you have to have the right people at the table. And what CalSecure does is, again, is a roadmap to show these are where you should be. This is These are the, the milestones you should be at by, you know, which year. But Part of it also is when you go in and do those assessments, those independent assessments with the departments, don't just give them an assessment and give them a rating and then walk away. Um, what we've, we've established here at, at, um, at uh, California is it's called critical services as a program that we go in and assess, but we also sit down and help prioritize. And we also have some funding and people that can help them over a 12 month period to correct some of those items and not leave them to themselves. I mean, if they need 
assistance were there. If they don't need assistance, they just needed to know the areas to focus on, they can continue doing that. But it, it needs to be beyond just a checkbox because you know you, you can't just be secure because you're compliant. You actually have to help people build it a part of their culture and that they're actually looking for those items and be able to reach out to us as partners when they need us. So I think it, you just you have to look at the program more holistically. You are a State Scoop 50 award winner uh, in, in the Golden Gov category. So state executives across the country who, who are really leading change and, and inspiring others while doing it. And, and the thing about the State Scoop 50 awards is that they are community driven. You were nominated by one of your peers across the community. Uh, and then all of you know our audience and, and the folks in the in the community voted and, and, and you were among those those winners. And so I guess that leads me to ask you, I mean, what what advice do you have for uh, the next aspiring California CIO or uh, the, the person who is, you know, starting their state service, uh, you know, at 18 or 16 and and moving forward uh, and, and getting ready for a life in the in the industry? Uh, well, twofold. Again, uh, let stakeholders uh, have stakeholders have a seat at the table. And it's not just technologists, make sure that business leaders, because what we do, and in some cases, even the public, uh, what we've been doing on our digital equity plan, we've been reaching out. Um, we've done 20 workshops, get out of the ivory tower, go out and talk to the people that it matters, because there's things that you're going to learn from those voices that are going to make whatever you do as a CIO much more um, rewarding and much more impactful. So um, definitely get out of your seat, get out there and make sure that they have a seat at the table. The other is a growth mindset. Um, we need to be looking at when it comes to being inclusive and making sure we're being innovative. Uh, Make sure that you have the opportunity to not just think of like the status quo is, is the way that we should be focusing. Always look for opportunities to continue to, to improve, pivot, um, and, and be willing to, to be surrounded by some really, really smart people that are going to help guide and advise and know when to listen um, and when to lead. And sometimes in some cases, leaders need to also know when to follow. And I think that when you hire the right people, um, when you really do put people first, you do realize what role you're playing um, when you when you think about that is, again, you're only as successful as the people that you are and have the privilege to serve. Um, I think it's it's pretty important. Leanna Bailey Crimmins, the CIO of California. You can read more about her and her top priorities at statescoop.com and in links in today's show notes. I'm Jake Williams, host of the Priorities Podcast. Next week on the show, you'll hear from Jennifer Lawrence, the CIO for the state of New York, about her top priorities and focuses as she takes on the state's IT operation on an interim basis. You can subscribe to the show at PrioritiesPodcast.com and in links in today's show notes. Washington, D.C. has a new chief data officer. Matt Sokol started in the role last month. He joins the district's IT office after working as a senior GIS analyst with the Maryland Department of Information Technology. He tells State Soup's Keely Quinlan about how his work in Maryland set him up for his new job in D.C. Yeah, so that was a, a really great experience. Um, I started out uh, as a senior GIS analyst over there, so doing a lot of, um, you know, uh, cartographic work, analysis, uh, data management for not only the Department of IT, but also, you know, the governor's office, uh, some law enforcement agencies, um, you know, economic agencies, you know, the whole gamut of uh, the kind of sectors they have over there, you know, health and human services, all that stuff. So um, one of the things I was kind of able to be fortunate to do is gain a lot of uh, IT infrastructure um, skills over time. Actually, my 
previous job. Before that, I worked in a, a small JS firm um, at a college, and they gave me the opportunity actually to get into some more um, IT-centric things, not necessarily uh, geospatial data all the time. I did a lot of uh, server management, server configuration, firewalls, email administration, um, a lot of much more broad like IT set of skills that just geo, geospatial data management. But uh, when I you know got over to Maryland, um, after working as a kind of a senior JS analyst for a little bit, um, I got, we were planning on our next generation of the state's enterprise GIS platform that's still called today MDI map. Um, and so, you know, with that background, I was sort of able to get into a little bit more of a broader skill set and taking that and using it to build a bigger geospatial platform. Um, so we actually brought the, uh, the platform in from a third party and we hosted it within the state's infrastructure. So I was able to sort of work through some of those, you know, IT architecture skills I had knowledge to really build out this really big platform for this for the whole state and anybody really use it was open to you know these were GS or hundreds of GS services that were open to you know state local federal uh, we had you know engineering firms come in and use our our you know aerial imagery um, our elevation data you know whatever it was um, and we really kind of created this really big sustainable platform um, and it was much more scalable uh, and more highly available than it ever was before. Um, so, you know, part of my job there was to sort of reduce the downtime, increase the capacity, um, think about how it fit more in, into a larger state infrastructure perspective um, of where the state's, you know, the infrastructure folks were really taking, um, you know, Maryland. So going along with them and sort of building out something new. Um, and that really became a, a really great thing I got to, to work on and just to see like the number of people that were using it and how how it made a difference in, in, you know, residents' lives, agencies' lives, you know, private firms' lives, everything that they were sort of doing in their day-to-day -day work was a really cool experience. Um, and, you know, getting to build that mostly on my own was really uh, fun and challenging, but also super rewarding. Gotcha, gotcha. So then you came over to Octo and you were first serving as, I believe, the interim data officer, correct? Yes. Um, so talk a little bit about transitioning from the interim to, to the permanent. Um, yeah, so it, it, it's been uh, it's been interesting. And, and in some senses, I'll say, you know, now as being the, the permanent, um, I've got a little bit more of a capability to, you know, kind of put my own brand and stamp on things and move forward with some projects um, now in sort of the permanent role. Um, in the interim role, I was really... I've been serving over a number of different groups um, so that those groups sort of include the, the GIS team, which also includes our open data program. Um, we have a really robust uh, middleware team um, that does a lot of data integrations between some of the more important um, uh, systems in the city, like the financial system and the procurement system, um, including the HR system. So we have a lot of really solid integration work between these major platforms in, in the city. Um, API management, uh, ETL tools, data lakes, data warehouses, um, some big data products. So I, I kind of oversee a, a pretty wide portfolio when it comes to when it comes to data. Um, but a lot of that was a lot of the day to day operations um, and trying to do some of the the jobs of the CDO at a much higher level um, in terms of thinking about policy and programs and processes. Um, but now that I've sort of transitioned over to the, the permanent role, 
um, starting to move forward with some, I want to say like bigger programs, more, more citywide efforts. Um, some of those things just, you know, thinking about that broadly, we're, we're doing this, uh, we're doing a data exchange project. We're removing some of our, um, ETL and, and middleware and API tools to a consolidated cloud platform, um, which is going to be really great because what we're, what we're trying to do there is to build this, um, a single infrastructure for agencies to all participate in the usage of, and we really want to give them, uh, access to all these core data set, core enterprise data sets that everybody is, you know, asking for and needing across the city. And we're looking to do that in a centralized place and give them the self-service tools to actually build the integrations themselves, build the ETL processes themselves, or they can work with Octo to, to complete those tasks. So we're really trying to make data more of a centralized thing here in the city where everyone can take advantage of is what I would call strategic enterprise investments um, in data collaboratively across the city. Um, rather than every agency kind of trying to do their own one-off thing, if we invest in the in the collective, you know, power of data, I think that's going to be really important. It'll reduce our time to development. Um, it'll it'll really make data more available across across the agencies, and we could do it in a, a really secure fashion. And we can do it so it it really helps all the programs, you know, get to their initiatives and their missions um, a lot quicker. So it's obvious to me that you've got quite the extensive resume, um, but I mean, just to like distill it down, what skills do you think um, that you gleaned from from those experiences? Um, will, which of those skills do you think will go on to help you most effectively in the role of chief data officer? Um, I think there's a lot of just general leadership skills that you kind of learned. I've, I've worked on worked under some really great people. I've worked under our former chief data officer. I've worked under former geographic information officers at Maryland. Um, and I think you really see, uh, you know, the leadership when it comes to data. And I think a lot of people, you know, kind of need that guidance and they look for that guidance for someone to kind of help them along the way in their quote unquote data journey, right? Everyone's at a different spot in a different place and everyone needs different things based on, on what their tasks are. And sort of being able to give them guidance and advisement on you know the best way to kind of move forward with these different um you know different projects or different technology and tools um is going to be you know really important um but i mean obviously i also think i you know here in dc we have a really great talent pool um and there's a lot of really smart people here who are really creative you know have some really creative solutions and you know they're they're really good at what they do so um they they make me look good but um you know in some sense but uh they, they uh, there's a really great talent pool here um and i think we can really you know take those resources we have and really build some really great things um you know to, to help us keep moving forward here with with data in the city i mean ultimately what we want to do is continue on our quote unquote data journey to help us continue to be a data-driven uh, decision-making city. Um, I think we can kind of take that to the next level, um, you know, in the next coming years. I think there's going to be a lot of, uh, one thing that I'm really interested in, in focusing on, um, is data literacy or data proficiency. Um, I think there's, when it comes to data, you really need to focus on sort of three things and it's, it's people processes and technology. 
Um, I think that's really important to, to not forget about your, your people and your processes. I think a lot of it's always focused on the tech side, which is, you know, which is great. Um, but being able to have people participate in the process at all levels is really, really important. I mean, even thinking about when I started out in GIS, just how important the data quality was as someone who was really doing data entry and, and, and data QC, right? I mean, I think that stuff, it all filters down to the, to the end state. And if we're, we're not good at doing it at the very beginning, we set ourselves up for challenges later on in the process. And being able to have uh, DC employees um, invest some time and, and re, you know, some effort into um, kind of these data literacy things where it's, it doesn't matter if you're a data entry person and it doesn't matter if you're a data manager, like everyone can benefit from these sort of fundamental data skills. And they're not really, I'm not talking about um, specific tech, uh, tech stacks. We can, we have training for those kinds of things for those various software packages. This is more of like talking about data security and, and, you know, data quality, data management, data ethics, right? There's a whole gamut of data related uh, fundamentals that I think you know everyone in the city could find some benefit from. Gotcha. Um, so, what was the what was the process of of getting the permanent job like? Were you were you approached about it, or was there an open vacancy and you and you <laughs> applied? What was that like? Yeah, I mean, I I was like I said, I was fortunate to serve in the in the interim role for uh, as long as they would allow me to when our when our first chief data officer left. Um, I, I sort of was proactive about trying to, trying to get there. Um, but then, you know, it was just a matter of you know, kind of waiting for the, the position to be open. And I was, you know, competitively with everybody else, um, you know, applied and, and, you know, I, I felt like I had a, a, a good chance based on existing, um, knowledge of the district government and, you know, not only about how we do data, but how we do, you know, procurement and budgeting and all the other things that sort of come into play for a data program. Um, it's not necessarily just about knowing how to move and uh, exchange and transform data um, around the city. It's also about understanding how government operations work so we can have a good program uh, in place here. And, you know, uh, I think some of that also, I've learned a lot from the existing Octo leadership that's here today um, that kind of brought me along as I was program manager before the, the chief data officer role. And you've been in this role since since April. Tell us what it's yeah. been like so far. What does your day to day look like? Um, you know, I'm I'm still working on on kind of uh, getting less in the weeds um, as far as the day to day operations go. Um, as we sort of think about continuing to staff up the program and and backfilling some positions. Um, but, you know, a lot of it is me now thinking about how are we, you know, uh, what kind of larger programs can we enter, implement at a citywide scale and how could we make things easier for cities to exchange and transform the data. Some of the things that I've mentioned, like the, our cloud data exchange, that's that's underway, um, you know, from, a, from an operational perspective, we think that's going to be great. Um, I'm getting, uh, you know, trying to continue to push the open data program. Um, so, you know, making sure cities, you know, the agencies understand um, the benefits of, of putting their data into open data and what it allows, um, what it allows the, the citizens or the constituents and uh, other agencies to do with that data and at the same time how it makes them more operationally efficient. Um, instead of responding to requests for data every day, we can point them to a centralized location. Um, 
you know, the data literacy program that I've, I've sort of mentioned about how we can sort of help, you know, train up some staff in the district. So trying to think about uh, some more of these these bigger bigger picture items. Um, you know, talking, I've mentioned to some CIOs about establishing a data governance working group um, to really establish uh, sort of more of a citywide um, data governance process. Um, I think a lot of agencies have their their own, but it would be nice to have sort of this common framework across the city. Um, so we're all kind of adhering to some certain standards. Yeah. And so you've mentioned the data literacy aspect um, of, you know, what you're doing, the cloud exchange project. Are there any other exciting or impactful projects that you're just like super, you know, jazzed to like take on or want to share a little bit about? I mean, I think there's some there's some general things in the city that um, are worth investment that I've been starting to think about how to how to pitch a little bit more um, master data management is is one of those kinds of tools um, that we don't have at a, at a citywide level where being able to really understand um, who your uh, how agencies use various services across the uh, the city um, is really important and you know the fact that you might not go into uh, one agency with you might go in with a nickname at one agency and a a full name in another agency being able to have those agencies put information into their systems but understand centrally um at, at a city level that these are the same people and they've used these various services right it allows for uh, agencies to think about um how how people are kind of flowing through the system and using dc services and that will ultimately i think allow them to better think about what resources they need both um funding-wise and operationally to understand how they're going to be able to support people um, coming through the system. Um, I think another one that I've been been sort of thinking about a little bit is, um, sorry, and I just forgot what I was going to say, actually. <laughs> um, but yeah, so that that's one of them. And our um, DC licensing, DC business licensing portal is another huge effort that we're undertaking right now as part of a, a bigger digital services effort for the city. Um, my role in that is really to facilitate the exchange of data between agencies in real time uh, fashion um, and also exposing a lot of that data now to open data. So typically, um, in order, for example, to get your business license, you might have to talk to 10 different agencies and go through a, a, a very difficult process just to obtain, you know, to really start that business and get it off the ground and get all the licensing and verifications and inspections you need. And part of this effort is to really build that into a single portal uh, where, you know, a, a new business owner can go through the process. But what we're able to do is we're able to bring back various pieces of information from different agencies to understand where they are in the licensing process, where they are from a, a permitting perspective, where they are from, a, you know, a, a certificate of clean hands from, you know, the city's financial system, tax and revenue system. So we're bringing together all these sort of disparate data sets that have always been these one-offs that people have to go through and we're sort of centralizing that and making it a lot more real time and easier for people to um you know get the things they need done to sort of get businesses off the ground here or renew a license or continue a business and i think this is going to expand eventually to other things that go beyond businesses so how 
sort of a family portal, a resident portal. So all these other services that the city is, is offering today, I think we're looking to sort of centralize that that fashion to make the, the experience a lot cleaner and quicker for um, for residents and, and families and businesses to use. So uh, I'm excited about how that's, that's progressing so far. Um, we've done a lot of great work and we've still got a lot more agencies to kind of bring into the process to make it even better. Yeah, yeah, that sounds, that does sound really cool. Um... So my last question for you, um, what emerging trends are you anticipating in the coming, say, like, you know, year to five years, maybe, in the data management and government space that may have some impact on Octo governance and operations? Yeah, so there's a lot of really cool things coming down uh, the, the pike in data all the time. Obviously, there's there's a lot of advances in, in, in data science and, and big data. Um, IoT is obviously still a, a, a prevalent thing. Um, how we're sort of, one thing that kind of takes me back to my geospatial side is sort of how we manage space. Um, this concept of digital twins um, and the ability for us to sort of completely recreate not only the uh, what the space is indoors and outdoors and how it, it plays in. So sort of digital replicas of buildings, right? And space management and understanding the environment within the building and how much energy we consume in the building. And then, you know, all those, and then how are people located in the space, but how do the spaces interact with the environment, right? Around us, um, you know, so that really gives us a lot of information about uh how the city operates right what you know how are we utilizing energy and how are we affecting the environment and how are we making the spaces better for the the employees right and you know things like that but not also integrating service management platforms where we can understand how to effectively deploy technicians based on um the number of tickets uh, at a specific quadrant of the city or in, within a certain building. And then not only that, but having a technician who is not familiar with uh, a building that they don't work in every day, but allowing them to do wayfinding within the building. So essentially to actually navigate, walk into the building, navigate to a specific printer in the building or a specific computer, you know, that needs assistance, right? When they can't do it remotely. So kind of the, it's, it's a really big ecosystem. Of, of things to work through there. And we have a lot of really good data when it comes to obviously the locations of the buildings, um, you know, the elevations of the buildings, things like that. We have a lot of those data sets from some of the, the collective uh, investments we've made in data today. It's sort of just going to the next step of combining all those great data sets we have together um, and implementing a, a, a kind of a, a framework and understanding of how we can use um, this type of data to really build this something like a digital twin system in the city. Matt Sokol, the chief data officer for Washington, D.C. You can read more about him and Washington, D.C.'s data efforts at statescoop.com and in links in today's show notes. It's an off year for the joint survey on state government cybersecurity that's regularly conducted by the National Association of State CIOs and Deloitte, but one of the architects behind the effort is still tracking the trending topics in the space. Srini Subramanian is a global risk advisory leader at Deloitte. He co-authors the survey, along with the staff at NASIO. He tells me about what an off year looks like for him and what he's thinking about when it comes to state government cyber. You know, for the past several one of our iterations of the study, we have talked about the talent 
challenge. And the Thailand challenge is almost to the point of being a crisis in the state governments. And uh, one of the things that I'm excited about is uh, the evolution of trying to tackle the talent problem as well as taking a whole of state approach to the cybersecurity. So one of the states in, uh, in our um, Western Texas, they are in the process of looking at an ecosystem model of government, a higher education institution, and the state governments with a private sector company like Deloitte coming together to say, can we train the students as they are, as they are going through the cyber curriculum in practical realities of tackling cyber challenges. So think of a SOC in which the students will be doing the monitoring and they are supervised by, by capable trained personnel, but they are getting that real hands-on training as they are going through their curriculum and getting that type of exposure and imagine that kind of training is going to get them good cybersecurity jobs in future. So it's not only a good thing to do from an ecosystem and talent development model, but also eventually something towards the economic development of the state. So I'm really excited about some of these creative models coming across um, in multiple states and, uh, and looking at the top three key takeaways of talent, tackle the talent problem, take a whole of state approach to cybersecurity and really evolve the CISO model I think this example, all of them come together. Let's talk about whole of state for a second because we're kind of at an interesting time for whole of state, right? The, the cyber grants are, have been, you know, the guidelines are out. States are starting to receive some money. Uh, you have other states, you have Florida and Arizona who have whole of state cyber contracts that they're signing with vendors. Uh, you know, where is whole of state in 2023 and, and sort of how do you see that continuing to evolve as we head into next year? So the way I see it, this is really exciting times because we have talked about the need for federal cybersecurity funding for state and local governments for a number of years. And finally, it has become a reality, right? And the SLTT grants are here. The first year grant money has been distributed. Now the states are actively doing the cybersecurity plan and thinking and figuring out how they are going to use the money. I think this is really exciting for me because I have seen the, the evolution of this for the past seven, eight years. And now this is a reality. And, uh, and I'm looking forward to more states having the pressure of needing to spend the money and really figuring out what are the things that they're gonna prioritize and get it done. So there are things like uh, identity management that need to be dealt at enterprise and state level. There are things like uh, situational awareness, monitoring and threat management that needs to happen as well. So there is a lot to be done. Yes, SLTT funding is not going to solve the cyber problems for the state governments and the whole of state, but it is a good start. And so sort of to, to wrap up, right, where I said at the beginning, you know, we're in an off year for the cyber survey. Uh, what in your, as you're looking toward next year, as you're looking toward producing that report, you know, what's top of mind for you? What are you expecting or thinking might come down the line? So next year, we definitely want to see some, some progress with respect to the funding. Now, the good thing, even in the 2022 uh, cybersecurity study, we saw that uh, the CISOs, for the first time since 2010, didn't put cyber budget as the top challenge. First time. So the, um, the legacy modernization and talent issues dominated their mind space. And uh, I'm expecting to see a continuation of trying to tackle the talent and uh, modernization 
and really tackling the evolution of threats as the next big thing. And in the meantime, really actively working with our clients to, to see what we can do and also trying to get some global perspective because in government, cyber challenge is very common, very similar across the globe. And uh, there are some, some interesting practices that, uh, that, might be, that might be relevant to US as well next year. Srini Subramanian, Global Risk Advisory Leader at Deloitte. He's a State Scoop 50 Award winner this year. You can read more about him, the survey, and meet other State Scoop 50 Award winners, including Leanna Belly Crimmins at statescoop.com and in links in today's show notes. You can subscribe to the Priorities Podcast at PrioritiesPodcast.com and wherever you get your podcasts. While you're there, be sure to leave a review or a rating on the podcast page. They make it more likely that more people will find the show. This podcast is a production of Scoob News Group in Washington, D.C. James Mahoney and Carlin Fisher helped put it together, and the entire Scoob News Group team contributes. Until next week, I'm your host, Jake Williams. Thanks for listening.